Well, ah, to this morning, I'm going to uh, continue with the sort of theme of, of radical, and we're talking about radical obedience. Um, my mum goes to one of the souls, well, a soul survivor church, which is led by the guy who used to be their youth leader at St. Andrews, and she told me this story. Um, a young girl in the church, uh, she had um, a lump on her back that was cancerous, and uh, on the Sunday, she went forward for prayer to see if the Lord might heal her. And uh, she received prayer. She felt nothing. But on the way home, she had a clear sense that she should purchase a Bible. She had plenty of Bibles of her own, but she kind of bought a new Bible. And then she felt the name Jimmy B, with the capital B. So Jimmy with the surname beginning with B. And that she should write that in the Bible. So she wrote it in the Bible. And... um, she felt she should just carry it around with her. So she had this Bible in her bag. And on the Wednesday, she was due to go and see her consultant. Uh, and he was going to bring in a specialist. And they were going to look at the exact location of this lump and how they should cut it out. And um, so she turns up on the Wednesday. And her consultant invites Dr. And I can't remember what the name was, but it was beginning with the letter B. So Dr. Bartholomew, let's say. So Bartholomew comes in, and he uh, says to her, look, we're going to take some scans or x-rays, whatever they do, and we're going to go and look at them in my office. And so he starts walking down the office with her with these two um, kind of scans or x-rays, one from before and one from this day. And as they're walking down the corridor, somebody shouts out, Jimmy, Jimmy. So she knows this is Jimmy B. And she's like, what do I do? What do I do, Lord? And this, they go into this little room, and he puts up these two kind of images, and one's before and one's after. And he starts to look at the image and says, oh, I'm going to have to believe, I'm going to have to believe. And she goes, well, what do you mean you're going to have to believe? And he, he says, because I said to myself, if I see one more miracle, I'm going to have to believe. <laughs> Whereupon, uh, she brings out the Bible and says to him what has happened and how she went for prayer and how the Lord spoke to her, and now this lump has gone incredible story of obedience. And I am just like, when did the healing happen? Was it when she bought the Bible and wrote the name in it? And that's when the lump went? Or was it as he's, I mean, you know, it's just wonderful, isn't it? So I want today to talk a little bit about leaning in to this kind of radical, kind of edgy obedience where you're willing to do a few crazy things because you sense this little inner voice, quiet voice saying, do this, do that. And it's so easy to just ignore it. We have found that um, even people who are on a journey to faith and haven't fully given their lives to Jesus are able to hear God's voice. So we had a guy in our church who um, was coming for a while. He's now fully, fully saved, baptized. But um, he was coming to us for a couple of years, and he would weep during the worship. He was in his 60s, but very fit. He used to run marathons and all sorts of things. And he would be weeping in the worship, and he enjoyed the teaching, but he couldn't make that leap from, you know, being an agnostic, questioning to absolute faith. But we were telling our church about the need to extend our building, and uh, we needed more money from our guys, uh, you know, the members of the church. And he considered himself a member of the church. And my John said to everybody, I'm not going to tell you how much you should give. This is between you and the Lord, and you need to ask the Lord to give you a figure. And some of you may be surprised because it may be more than you would imagine possible to give. And this guy, on the way home, he says, well, God, if you're there, speak to me. And he gets this figure in his mind. 
And he thinks, well, I can't possibly give that sort of money unless I land myself a whole new deal with his business. And uh, the Sunday came around where everybody was bringing their offerings and the kids were coming up with their offerings and the whole shebang. And he came to church uh, in faith with this check believing that if this was the Lord, he would get this deal. And he puts the money in the offering. And in the afternoon, he has an email come through to say that he's landed this new deal and can easily pay. And I thought, what an incredible thing. Somebody who isn't yet a believer, because it then took him about six months later where he really, really gave his life to the Lord, to actually be willing to hear God and part with his money Uh, in that way. I mean, it spoke to me as a Christian. I've been a Christian for years, and I sometimes don't hear the Lord and obey the Lord. But the truth is, if we're going to move in authority as we minister to other people, as we cast out demons, as we heal the sick, uh, we need a touch from the Holy Spirit for ourselves, as many of you have been encountering this weekend. Being prepared to be filled by the Holy Spirit, to have all those inner issues be continually dealt with. We just need to be filled and filled again by the Holy Spirit to move in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We in the vineyard are people who are known for the love of God's presence. About three weeks ago, yes, it was three weeks ago, um, Justin Welby, who's the new Archbishop of Canterbury, and that means that he is uh, the head of the Worldwide Anglican Communion, which is 80 million people. So he's like the Pope, the equivalent to the Pope in the Anglican Church. And um, he, was, he is a friend of John and Eleanor Mumford, who are the Vineyard UK leaders. And they invited him um, before he was enthroned, which is the, what they do to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And um, before he was enthroned, he was uh, Bishop of um, Durham, Bishop of Durham before he became Bishop of Ca- Canterbury. And it was, it was a crazy thing because he'd only been in He'd only been a bishop for seven months, so he'd been a pastor, then a bishop for seven months, and now he's been made the bishop of the whole world uh, in the Anglican uh, communion. And so he was invited to come to speak to our leaders' conference, but he couldn't make any of the days. So John and Eleanor said to him, well, would you come to Trent Vineyard on the Sunday night? Because that's where we host the conference. And the Sunday night, we, we always have an evening, we have a morning and an evening service on our Sunday and so we were excited, and we said to the church, don't tweet it, don't Facebook it, we're going to be packed out, there won't be anywhere, there will hardly be any room for anybody to sit, because lots of our pastors are going to come, um, and Justin Welby's coming. Anyway, they were absolutely, he and his wife, absolutely delightful. But during, uh, John Mumford was interviewing him, and he said to him, what would you say to the vineyard? And he said, I would say to the vineyard, don't lose your passion for the Holy Spirit. Don't let go of the Spirit. That's what the vineyard is known for. And he told us of how when he was um, a young, younger man with his wife Caroline, they, their first child, Joanna, um, was killed in a car crash. And they were in serious pain. They were working in France at the time. And they came back to England to HTB, which is the church that launched Alpha. If any of you have heard of the Alpha course, it came out of HTB. Again, a sovereign, incredible supernatural encounter uh, was had at HTB and H- and Alpha was birthed, which is, again, the vineyard visiting uh, HTB and the Lord moving through uh, John Wimber and, and their team. Anyway, they got back home and the uh, HTB had had this incredible encounter with the Holy Spirit. People had been healed and, and were being transformed and all sorts of things were happening, but they were in pain as a couple because they had lost their little baby. 
And so this was kind of a, quite hard to deal with because everybody was excited and they were in serious pain. And they were persuaded to go out to the Anaheim Vineyard for a healing conference. And so he and his wife went out there. And Bob and Penny Fulton, who are some of the founders of our movement, prayed for them. And they said it was the most transformational experience in their whole lives. They were just incredibly healed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so he would say to us, don't lose your passion for the Holy Spirit. As a child, I was telling um, you uh, yesterday, I I lose the plot of of the days, I devoured Catherine Coleman books. She was rather eccentric, wore these long gowns and would have words of knowledge and people would be healed. And I just remember being fascinated by stories of healing. And so when we came into the vineyard and began to see people healed physically, particularly, I was just incredibly excited. I just loved to see Uh, physical healings particularly, and particularly amongst unbelievers, as a sign and a wonder that God is real. And I truly believe that that is where we will see the most fruit, is when we go out and pray for people who don't know Jesus yet. So we had been to um, the Westminster Conference. So we'd been to my dad's church and experienced the Holy Spirit, but we were now newly married, and John Wimber was coming to England to Westminster in central London, and churches, all kinds of denominations, Methodists, Protestants, Anglicans, Catholics, I mean, all kinds of people were coming to the Westminster Conference, and John Wimber was teaching on the subject of healing. And amazing things happened. I mean, I I just remember them demonstrating at the front, and there being, you know, a couple of guys on the American team, and then somebody responding to a word of knowledge. And, you know, it wasn't even that there were these dramatic healings, but it was the way they explained the signs of the Holy Spirit, people's eyelids fluttering, people shaking, feeling a warmth, and just the, the way they just made the whole thing look so naturally supernatural. And as we watched the minister to folks, we caught the model that this is something that's doable, and it's actually doable outside of uh, any church building. And um, so we went home, and my John felt compelled to call his friend Lou. Now, Lou, uh, John had known from the age of 16, and we were now um, kind of 23. I think John was 23 at the time. And he'd known John for, for Lou for a number of years. Lou was a narcotics addict, a very large man, and uh, he was uh, on prescribed medication to uh, handle his addictions. And uh, John calls him up after not having seen him for a couple of years. And he calls Lou's home, and Lou's mum says, oh, um, Lou's been sent home to die. And so John says, can I go and see him? And uh, she said, oh, yeah, sure. So he went over to see Lou. Uh, We lived in a two hours away. And uh, John went to see Lou, and he walked into Lou's bedroom. And Lou Lou, Lou was 30 years old, and Lou had lost um, something like 80 pounds of weight. He was like, you know, gaunt, just looked skeletal. I mean, it, it was just frightening to see him. And John and he, they just, John fell into his arms. They just held each other and wept. And Lou was lying in bed with two gashes in his stomach across here and here, with, and he was pouring um, hydrogen, well, sulfuric acid, kind of hydrogen peroxide, I think, through it. I can't remember which of the two it is, to clear the poison in his stomach. He had deep vein thrombosis and, um, what's the other thing, and pleurisy. And so basically he was home and deteriorating day by day and uh, had been told that he would die. And there was nothing more that the hospital could do. And so John says, Lou, I believe Jesus could heal you. Can I pray for you? 
Now, at the time, Lou claimed to have experienced or experimented with Buddhism and transcendental meditation, and he thought he'd, he'd tasted Christianity and nothing had worked for him. But he said, sure, you know, um, you can pray for me. And John just invited the Holy Spirit into the room. And all of a sudden, Lou kind of throws his head back and goes, oh, what's that? And John said, that's the Holy Spirit. And he said, it felt like the most incredible rush of peace, bigger than any rush of heroin that he'd ever experienced. And John says, that's Jesus. That's the presence of Jesus. Do you want to know him? And Lou uh, gives his life to Jesus. And then he is dramatically healed. And it was like two weeks later, the doctors just said, this is miraculous. And uh, it was probably the first major miracle that John and, ever, John and I ever kind of experienced and saw and um, saw the, the, the effect that it had on Lou and his mom. And it was just an incredible, incredible thing. My father began to coin the phrase, the meeting place is the learning place for the marketplace. So this is the meeting place, which is actually the learning place. This is where we can learn and experiment and fail and take risks so that we can go out into the marketplace, which is where our friends and neighbors are, and begin to minister. And moving in this kind of obedience is for everybody. And I don't know about you, but I love hearing stories of um, just supernatural intervention. I just get so excited by it. My cleaner regularly uh, gets me into trouble and sends me off praying for all kinds of people that she meets. And uh, she uh, called me up one day and she said, my friend Lydia has just had a baby and her baby Evie is in intensive care in a little incubator. Um, she has collapsed, a collapsed lung and needs a blood transfusion and they don't know if she's going to make it. And uh, so she said, will you go and pray for them? So I said, okay. And so the, Evie was born on Monday. On Wednesday, I was, went into the hospital and um, met the family who clearly had no idea of what church was. I just was trying to explain to them that I'm a Christian, that I love Jesus, and I'll be praying for Evie in the name of Jesus uh, with the authority that's given to me. And I mean, they were like, they just didn't understand any of it but clearly were absolutely desperate for something to happen. So her extended family were there and her partner. And uh, so then I just said, well, you know, take me to Evie. So Lydia, the mum, walked me down the stairs to the intensive care unit. And I remember she pressed on the buzzer uh, so they would let her in. And, and she said, I'm, uh, it's Lydia, Evie's mum, and I'm here with, I'm here with the lady, uh, the lady. And she must have had a conversation with them that a lady was going to come and, and pray for Evie, but she just didn't know how to describe me. Uh, and uh, so uh, we went in, and the nurse explained to me, after we'd washed our hands in lots of different things, um, that I could put my hands in the box uh, through the, the, the two holes, but I couldn't touch. I mustn't lay hands on Evie. I must just hover over the top. So I put my hands in and just prayed, and I prayed that Evie would be healed in the name of Jesus and that, and that Evie would never know a time that God wasn't in her life, you know, that she would uh, meet Jesus uh, and would know God. And then I prayed for Lydia, and uh, it was a, just a lovely time. And, and on the way up, Lydia said to me, did you sense anything? And I said, you know something, I didn't feel anything particularly happen, but let me tell you some stories. And so I told her of um, one of the babies in our church, our church who, whose uh, mother detected that the baby would not react to noise, and then if there was a noise, he would always turn his head in one direction. And so she uh, asked the doctor to look into this, and sure enough, he was deaf in one ear. And one Sunday morning, they come to church, 
and there was a word of knowledge about uh, someone being deaf in one ear. And uh, she went up for prayer with her baby, and uh, they prayed, and then she began to notice that he wasn't um, turning his head, and that he was reacting to her voice and noise in, in just without kind of just turning in one direction. So she went back to the doctors, had him checked out, and sure enough, his hearing had returned. And then I told her about um, Jocelyn. And I've got a picture to show you, because this is a scan. Can we put that up? We'll need to turn the lights out. Have we got the guys ready there to show this picture? Okay. Now, where you see, it says cleft on that side, looking up with a little arrow pointing to a line. So actually that little bit in the, in the middle of the picture, I hope you can see I should have a, like a little laser thing. It's like, it's like a little nose and then a line goes down and it looks like a really swollen lip. So it's like this, like that. Do you, get, do you see it? Okay, so that is called a cleft lip. And what that, when, she, when, when Jocelyn was due to be born, that would be a cleft palate. And that means that it, all this whole section is open. It's very complicated. It means several operations. Anyway, while she's in the womb and she's had this scan, um, it, her parents, um, uh, Ed and Fiona, so they, we, we pray for Fiona, we lay hands on, on Jocelyn, and then this is how, when Jocelyn is born. Isn't that amazing? So, so baby, they went to... So obviously the consultants are just bemused. And, um, and Fiona asked the consultant, is it possible, you know, that this would happen in the womb, you know, from, from diagnosis, from the scan? Is it possible that, you know, the womb is an environment of, of everything kind of multiplication of cells? And he says, no, there is no way that this... We, we have never had this happen before, where we have seen the scan and there's the clear indication... Absolutely, this is a cleft lip that is going to become a cleft palate. There is no way this is a miracle. And she has letters from the doctors that state this. So I love to, you know, just have some that are kind of evidence like that because it, it, it's just so valuable, isn't it, when we see the, that change. I um, just, one of the stories that I just found really exciting, but again, we need to just become more radical in our obedience to the Lord. Uh, one of our friends works in India, Pastor Daniel, and uh, he trains up church planters. And one of his young church planters came to him and said, I feel an urgency to go to this particular village in, in India to plant a church. And Pastor Daniel wasn't sure if this young guy was ready, but he could really sense that the Spirit of God was on this young man. And there was an urgency about this sense that he had. So he released him to go. And in a way, well, what damage could it do? A little village, the guy might not be ready, but, you know, let's see what the Lord's going to do. But there's a story behind this because um, about a year previously, uh, in, in one of the villages nearby, there's, uh, the chief of the village um, is really anxious and concerned because his daughter, who is now in her late teens, has severe mental uh, problems and uh, challenges. And the witch doctor has been trying to heal her over the years. And eventually the witch doctor says to the chief, there's only one person who's, been able, who's going to be able to help your daughter, and that's a man called Jesus. I've heard he'll be able to help your daughter. So the chief goes around looking for this man, Jesus. And he goes from village to village, and he goes through 10 villages asking people if they've seen this man, Jesus, if they don't know anything about him, and nobody knows. And finally he gets to a village, and they go, well, that's really interesting, because there's a man here who does nothing but talk about Jesus. And so he knows, he must know Jesus, he'll introduce you. So the chief finds this guy, and he says, um, 
you know, my daughter suffers from all these things. You need to introduce me to this man, Jesus. And, and so this young pastor says, I know Jesus, and I can introduce you to Jesus, and we can pray for your daughter. And they pray for his daughter, and his daughter is dramatically delivered and healed. And you know something? The, the ten villages that the chief had been through all now have churches in them. So, you know, there is something amazing. Yeah, we must, yeah, praise God, praise God. And, you know, I remember stories in the early days of the vineyard when uh, people like Bob and Penny would turn up in a country and pray about where to go and literally knock on a door. And and I remember some folks saying, we were people, the door was not our house, you know, someone knocked on the door, they were from the vineyard, and we ended up starting a small group in our home and becoming part of the vineyard movement. And I can't remember what country it was, but I met those people, and I just thought, that's, that's amazing. And we need to gain that, that courage again. We need to be empowered to follow the model of Jesus. You know, Jesus attributed all his power to the Holy Spirit. And although he was God himself, he had um, emptied himself, in a sense, of, of his, you know, some of his godly attributes and uh, you know, gifting that would come with being God himself. And he depended on the Holy Spirit, so he modeled to us this dependence of the the Holy Spirit. In his humanity, he demonstrated to us how we can live, that this is is a potential for all of us. We see at his baptism, the Holy Spirit coming upon him, and his radical obedience to the Holy Spirit who, who drove him into the desert to be tempted. I mean, you know, he obeys the Holy Spirit and goes into the desert to face a grueling temptation. And, you know, how many of us would willingly go and allow the enemy to tempt us and to test us? Uh, you know, that's, that's just a very painful thing. Um, in the scriptures, the, the Holy Spirit descri- is described uh, as ruah, uh, which means wind, an invisible force, uh, a force of power. It could be quite ra- a kind of raging force, a violent force. Um, the Spirit stirs things up. He doesn't make things comfortable for us. But then we also see in the New Testament the word pneuma, which is the Greek word that means to breathe or blow. And in, in, in John chapter 20, Jesus just blows on the disciples. There's more of an intimacy about this coming of the Holy Spirit. And many of us are willing to experience that kind of intimate blowing into our lives of the Holy Spirit. But not many of us have, have experienced the, the dynamic uh, power when, that comes when, when the, the, the ruah, the, the forceful power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us. But we must never forget that the forceful power of the Holy Spirit is not just a power, it's a person, the third person of the Trinity. John's Gospel describes or names the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, which means the counselor, the comforter. And how incredible it is that, that so often some of the physical conditions that we have may come as a result of something that is deeply traumatic in our lives or, you know, something, someone has wounded us. I remember being at a conference and there was lots of people up for prayer and uh, a mum comes up to me and she says, can you come and pray for my daughter? And I went to the back of the um, auditorium and there's a girl sitting there with a, with a, a plaster cast. No, it wasn't plaster. It was some sort of heavy cast on her leg, holding her leg. And basically she'd had this pain for a year, severe pain from her hip down to her leg, just pain in her leg. Nobody could, there's a word for it, but it doesn't mean, it, doesn't, it isn't something, it isn't, it isn't caused by anything. Nobody knows why it's there, but it's just pain that sears down her leg and she couldn't walk on it and she had to use crutches and have her leg just held in plaster in this, in this cast. And um, so I just got the, 
the sense that she had been through something very abusive, but um, that it wasn't in her childhood. And so I just began to ask her, tell me about your life. Tell me about your teenage years. And it turned out, and she gave me permission to tell her story. And um, she had been brought up as a Christian, but had rebelled, had got involved in a relationship with an older man who was really sexually abusive. And he did horrible things to her and uh, put objects inside her that were, you know, that cut her and things like this. And uh, she then finds Jesus again in her early 20s. And for the first six months, it's just a dramatic coming back to the Lord. Everything is wonderful. And then she suddenly develops this pain. And uh, I said, have you ever told anybody about that whole experience? And she had never told anybody about this experience with this man. And I said, you need to bring that out and you need to, you know, allow the Lord to heal you. And that means you may need to receive forgiveness for being part of such a, a perverse relationship and also extend forgiveness to this man. Um, because there is a relationship between this trauma and this terrible season in your life. And it needs to come into the light. But, I, but she was really concerned. She didn't know. She didn't feel she could talk to anybody about it. And the only way she was telling me is because I kind of coaxed it out of her. And she felt that, you know. But the amazing thing is, is that once you tell one person the freedom that comes, you know. And I said to her, what I want you to do is, I said, I don't know. Because um, we prayed for her leg, but nothing seemed to change. And so I said, I don't know if this is because you need to really go through some kind of counseling or you need to tell your parents. You need to bring this out more than just talking to me. And, uh, you know, whilst we've, we've prayed in it, we've only been able to spend, you know, 10 minutes in prayer here. This may be a longer process. But I said, why don't you first go home and write a letter out to the Lord and just write out everything that happened, confess it to the Lord in as many details, as much detail as you can, and then um, ask the Lord to forgive you and receive that forgiveness and then extend forgiveness to this man. And three months later, she wrote to me, and she said that it was as she ended the letter and extended forgiveness, and at this point, everything was quite, still quite private, she felt the pain leave her leg. And she said, I've walked now for three months without any pain. I don't wear the plaster. I'm free. And now I don't care who knows. And so you can tell my story because I'm not ashamed anymore because there's been such an incredible healing and a miracle. And so, you know, so often the Holy Spirit comes to comfort and to heal us from wounds in the past that can affect um, the physical state of our being. So the Lord says in uh, Isaiah, he goes into the synagogue, Jesus goes in and he, he reads from the, from the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, today, this is the time between the now and the not yet of the kingdom. This is the time, the year of the Lord's favor. The year in scripture could be 700, 7,000 years. You know, it, it's a time, it's a time frame between the now and the not yet. And basically, this is a time in which we will see the captive set free. And God is waiting, holding back before judgment day. He doesn't want to return until as many as possible have been reached. And it's down to us. He's working through us, through, through us being anointed by his Holy Spirit to reach out. And so Jesus went forward in obedience, ministering, being led by the Father. And the Spirit of God drove him to accomplish his mission. 
he was so consumed with obedience to the Father that some people thought that he was working with a kind of a strange power. Uh, in Mark, uh, there is, he alludes to a strange power working within him. Men thought he was beside himself, Mark says. It's like he's out of his mind. He's seized with a sense of urgency. Um, he's, he's just not distracted by the things that we get distracted by. One of the young girls in our church, she was out shopping in the city center and uh, with a couple of friends. And she heard some guys speaking on a loudspeaker, like a, a microphone that was plugged into uh, a system. And they were preaching uh, hell and damnation. And I, I didn't know people did that now in, in these days. But anyway, there are these guys from a little Pentecostal church in, in Nottingham. And they're just going for it with, you know, uh, the wages of sin and death and, and all this kind of stuff, which is all scriptural. But it was kind of not very pleasant and um, people were just walking past and, and Hannah was incensed by it. So she goes up and she says, can I preach? And they pass her the microphone. <laughs> Stupid. And she says, God loves you and there are many of you with various ailments and you need healing and we're going to pray for you today. And she and her friends uh, began to, people started to come up and, and get prayer. And so she got involved in praying for, for these people. And then the guys said, can we have the microphone back? And they took, and she thought, oh my gosh, what are they going to do? And she looked up and they said, there's so many of you here. You need to get into line and, uh, you know, make a line because she hadn't realized how many people were queuing up to be prayed for. Because they, this was the good news. And, you know, I, I'm amazed how many people are open to receiving prayer who would literally stand in line to wait to receive prayer. And I think for those guys, it was a paradigm shift. Um, so, you know, sometimes we're seized with a sense of urgency. Something disturbs us, and we feel we need to do something about it. I was on my way to church one Sunday morning, and uh, I just had this just strange little sense that if I met somebody coming towards me on crutches, I should stop and pray for them. Well, I'm not going to see anybody on crutches walking by the river. Why would they be out on crutches walking by the river? So it's a 45-minute walk to church, and it's a lovely walk by the river, river, and so there's no way someone's going to be on crutches walking by the river. And I I just turn around this sort of bend, and there coming towards me are three people, and the one in the middle is on crutches. So I have to stop them, and I say, excuse me, what did you do? And he tells me, the guy says how he walked out in front of a car, and a car ran over his foot, so it's actually his foot. And so I said, look, you know, I felt God speak to me about, you know, somebody would come around the corner with crutches, and I'm supposed to pray for you. Can I, is it okay if I lay hands on you? And he goes, yeah, okay. So I put my hand, and the the other guys are looking a bit, like, puzzled, and I get down on my knees, and I put my hand on his foot, and I pray in the name of Jesus that this foot would be healed. So I said, now, put some weight on it, test it out. So he starts to put weight on it. He goes, oh, yeah, it's definitely feeling better. So I said, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, if it was a 10 before, how much healing? He goes, well, it's a 5 or something along those lines. It was reduced. So I went, well, can I pray again? So we prayed again. And anyway, by the end of it, he had like a half a percent of discomfort. But it was just um, something really significant had happened. And they began to ask me questions about God and the church. And it was just a wonderful encounter. Well, I was really buzzed. The next week, I'm walking down the river, and I'm probably remembering the situation. And, of course, it comes into my mind again you know, if you see somebody on crutches or with a stick or some problem with their leg, you need to pray for them. And again, I'm thinking, well, that was last week. It's not going to happen again. I walk down the river all the time. Nobody ever walks down the river who can't walk properly. And uh, so around the corner comes, this time he's a Muslim guy with a long white 
thing and a, and a hat and he's got a young girl on his arm and he's holding her and he's got a stick. And of course, so I have to stop them. And I said, excuse me, uh, what's, what's the problem with, um, with your leg? And she, he doesn't speak any English. And so she says, da, 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 da. and he goes, da, 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 da. And, I'm, and apparently he has something wrong with his hip. And so I said, can I pray for you in the name of Jesus? And so she asks him, and he says yes. And I said, can I put my hands on? And he, yes. So I lay my hands on his hip, and I pray in the name of Jesus. And I then said, now do something that you can't normally do. And he starts to bounce up and down. And he's like, oh, 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 you know. And I am absolutely shocked. I'm so shocked and embarrassed that I will, that's the power of Jesus. And I kind of run off. And as I'm walking away, I'm like... I'm, I, I mean, this is, like, this isn't easy to do, folks. I mean, I, it's not like I'm, I'm just like you. This is frightening, embarrassing, and, and I should have stayed longer. I should really have explained the gospel. I should have taken everything. But I was just like, oh, I've done what I had to do. It's, it's worked. I'm running. And uh, anyway, I was in Phoenix a couple of years back, and I was going to tell this story, and I, I had kind of the opposite of jet lag, whatever. I'm waking up early in the morning, about four in the morning. Well, it was probably five. And I thought, well, I'm going to go for a run. So I'm, I'm running along. This is early in the morning in Phoenix. And I'm thinking I'm going to tell that story tonight. And in pops my head, if you see somebody walking with a stick, <laughs> you've got to pray for them. And I thought, who am I going to meet walking with a stick here in Phoenix at, at four, at half four, maybe five o'clock in the morning? It's not going to happen. And sure enough, coming towards me is a woman with a full sari, an Indian woman walking towards me in Phoenix with a stick. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. And you know what? I ran straight past her. I was like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. Anyway, of course, I was like, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. And I'm walking 10 minutes down the road and I feel, down the road and I feel the Lord say, Debbie, you've got to do this. And I said, well, if I see her on the way back, I will. So I'm running along, and she's nowhere, nowhere to be seen. I get to the end of the road where I'm going to just cross over, and I just happen to look right and left, and I look down, and there she is sitting outside her house on a bench. So, of course, I've got to go. So I go along, and I start to say, hello, um, I'm Debbie, I'm from England, and she doesn't speak English. But her husband walks out, and he says, oh, um, good morning. And so I said, oh, well, hello, I'm Debbie, and um, I'm from England, and... Uh, and he says, oh, what part of England are you from? And I said, I'm from Nottingham. Oh, Nottingham. I used to work in Sainsbury's in Nottingham. He, I mean, what is the coincidence of in Phoenix? So I said, well, I'm a pastor. I love Jesus. I would love to pray for your wife. What's the problem? And he lists a whole load of ailments, diabetes and various things. So I said, can I lay hands on her and pray for her? Oh, yes, you certainly can. So, um, so I lay hands on her and I pray for her and... Um, and she kind of gets up smiling, and, we, and she just wants to walk with me. So we walk down the end of the road, and she's jabbering away. I don't know what she's saying. I have no idea whether anything happened to her. And, uh, but, you know, I did what I was supposed to do, and then I, uh, later on I dropped a whole bunch of literature through their letterbox. But I don't know if, if she ever went to Phoenix Vineyard. I don't know what happened. But, um, you know, the Lord just leads you to some crazy things. Sometimes you will have failure stories, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you one, well, one or two, because you need to hear that there are many, many failures, and I've blotted some of them out because they're too traumatic, and I need healing from them. Um, but every time you press on and you have a breakthrough, you're healed from the ones that, that, uh, that didn't work. But there are many failure stories. So, you know, on the plane over 
to Minneapolis, from Phoenix to Minneapolis. I'm sitting next to a couple of women, and I'm really quite tired. And so I'm grateful that they're nattering to each other, and I'm not going to talk to anybody. And because I think I'm becoming more of an introvert. And uh, anyway, so I'm sitting there, and they're talking away, and I'm thinking, I should be engaging them. I'm, I'm, this is such an opportunity. I should be chatting to them, but I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I don't want to. I'm not going to. And it's like this thing. Going through, I don't want to, Lord, please. I don't want to. I'm so tired. And then I go kind of have a little snooze. And then, and we're coming into land, the, the plane, and they, they engage me in combat. And they say, oh, uh, have you been to Minneapolis before? And we start. And what were you doing in Phoenix? So I said, well, I was teaching on the kingdom of God. What does that mean? So I said, well, and I just began to explain about, you know, uh, just equipping Christians to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to minister in his power, to heal the sick so that people would know the good news of Jesus. That sounds fascinating. Can we have a business card? I mean, I miss, I mean, isn't that terrible? I mean, I could have had two hours talking to those women who were absolutely fascinated by the idea of the kingdom of God. And instead, all I could do was give them my business card and uh, say, email me, and we'll continue the conversation. But, you know, so there are times when we fail to walk in obedience. There are times when we walk into a bunch of people, like John and I did. We were walking in Nottingham in the evening, and there was a crowd of young teenagers. And we just thought, we're going we're gonna to go for it. So we went right into the middle. I said, has anybody here got toothache? No, nobody had toothache. Um, has anybody here got a problem with their leg? No, no one had a problem with their leg. And finally, they said, why are you asking? I said, because, because I believe Jesus wants to heal somebody here. <laughs> so one of you must have some sort of ailment. And one of them said, well, I've got a, a shoulder that I can't move. I've got a sports injury. I can't move my shoulder. So, uh, so we prayed for him, and nothing happened. And so like, not only had we failed with our words of knowledge, but then we'd failed for, the, for, for this young kid to get healed. And everybody, they were all watching. And then, but before we'd finished and nothing had happened, another one says, well, I've got a problem in, and I can't remember whether it was his shot. Yeah, it was his, um, his elbow. And so we start to pray for, and he begins to feel a sensation. And then another little kid goes, well, I've got a problem with my back. And he gets off the wall and he goes, it's healed already. You've healed my back without even praying for it. And we have this amazing conversation about the Lord, about you coming to our youth and all of that. And so I realize that we're more afraid of failure than people who don't know Jesus. Uh, we once um, had one of our um, small group leaders come to us and ask, because a, a really fantastic person in the church, wonderful Christian, had contracted mad cow disease. I don't know what the technical term is. It was a, it's a horrible disease. And he died a terrible death. And everybody prayed for him to be healed, and he wasn't healed, and he died. And his small group leaders, who were great friends of, of the family, came to see us and said they'd had a dream. He, the, the guy, had had a dream in which he had prayed over the coffin. And that, that John, uh, who had died, would, would be raised and would literally break through the coffin and sit up and testify, you know, and so we, John and I, looked at each other and we thought, this is going to be really embarrassing. Uh, however, do we believe that God speaks? Do we believe that God speaks to people? And, you know, what are we going to do with this? And, and these guys are not nutters. I mean, these are good, wonderful small group leaders. And so we said to them, look, if Pat, uh, this is John's wife, the widow, if she wants this to happen, we'll do it. We'll go for it. And you can pray over the coffin. But only if she agrees. Anyway, Pat agreed that this was something that John, her husband, would have been happy with and would have wanted. And so she agrees. So we have the funeral. And there are people who have come from everywhere. Leaders from other churches have come. 
and uh, lots of unbelievers as well. So it comes to the point in the service, and Marjon explains that we believe that God speaks today and that uh, um, these particular small group leaders have had a dream and we're going to be obedient. We're going to allow some time for John to be raised from the dead. <laughs> and so um, the small group leaders come up and they pray over the coffin and nothing happens. And it feels like this goes on for ages and ages. And there's this oh, terrible pregnant silence. And we're, part of us, we're, we're just anticipating and part of us are just full of unbelief. I mean, the whole thing is like so embarrassing and nothing happens. And thankfully, Pat, John's wife, she stands up and she says, I want you to know that this is exactly what John would have wanted. And I am so pleased that we have attempted to raise my husband from the dead. And, uh, and so it was just, it, it was so wonderful that she said that. And when, when we got on, we're celebrating his life and uh, worshipping the Lord. And afterwards, as we kind of... Um, uh, hung out with everybody, the leaders of other churches were like, this is the most bizarre service we've ever been to. But the unbelievers were like, but of course, wouldn't you do that as Christians? I mean, wouldn't you do that at every funeral? Expect that maybe there'd be some kind of a breakthrough? And, you know, is this not the kind of thing that you guys believe? Isn't it? Aren't you? And so, you know, we realize that, that um... anyway, let's go to the break. Come back in 15, I think, what, at 11 o'clock? I think come back at 11 o'clock. And we'll move forward. So we need to find out what happened to Evie. I nearly forgot to tell you what happened to the baby. So I'd been in, so I told her the baby stories and, um, and left her. And then the next day, she says, uh, she texted me and um, she said, thank you so much for praying. I feel so much peace. And um, they're very, very pleased with Evie's progress. And so that was Thursday. On fr- oh, and, and they're talking about doing the blood transfusion. So they did the transfusion. And uh, on the Friday, so this was like she said, they're, they're amazed at, at Evie's progress. It's just, thank you so much. And the next day, I'm sitting in a restaurant. And I get a text to say, they're going to, they're, it's, everything's gone really well. They're going to take her off the machine. Uh, can you pray that she breathes by herself? And uh, so... I get the text, and I realize that the text actually had come through at about 4 o'clock, and it's now 5. And so I, we're at the dinner table, and with my family, we go, let's pray for baby Evie. So we just called out to the Lord, and I texted back, and I said, we're praying right now. And she, like, within three minutes, and she goes, wow, baby Evie's just started breathing. So it was, it was that, and she says, so I said, that's the power of God. And she texts back, you've made me believe it was just such a, a cool uh, story. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, the truth is, uh, we live before an audience of one. And so we step out and we take risks. And we may think that we've failed sometimes. And uh, the truth is, we just never know the impact uh, that we've had on people's lives. We've had people visit our church who have been touched by things that folks in our church have done uh, Blessing the community projects where they had, you know, someone turn up to clean, um, to rake up the leaves in autumn, uh, where somebody visited their grandmother in an old people's home and then met somebody at the school gate who prayed for them. And, you know, bit by bit, different ones of us have affected people's lives in our city who then come along to the church and tell us all these different things that have happened and eventually they had to come to the church. So sometimes you think that what you've done hasn't amounted to much, and we just have to trust the Lord um, with those, uh, what appear to be sometimes failure stories, 
um, because nothing is wasted. And even if they don't experience something, we always, we're always learning through those experiences. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that Jesus was the firstborn of many brothers, and I would add sisters, that, that his life uh, is, really is a model for us to live by, that, that he is a sign uh, to us of how we can all live and be. We all get to hear God's voice. Jesus said to the disciples, wait, wait for my spirit, wait for the gift that the Father has promised. And uh, they did, they waited. And, and some of us, we, we get distracted, we're not, we're not good at waiting. And uh, whether it's waiting to be filled up again, or whether it's waiting in the context of ministry time to just really receive from God. Um, but as a result of their waiting and the Holy Spirit fall, falling on them, the entire historical movement began at that episode of Pentecost. And it resulted in the founding of the church on that occasion. And that in those days, we see in the early books, uh, in, the, in the gospel story, sorry, in the uh, book of Acts, we see God directing them, uh, speaking to them, warning them of things, sometimes stopping them from going to places. And Acts tells us how the early church moved in this power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so we need to expect the supernatural. We need to expect God to do things and sometimes, you know, we are called into very, very unusual, uh, challenging places. And sometimes we're called to be obedient with some really big things that um, just uh, challenge us to the core because we fear that we're going to fail. And, you know, one of the gifts that I really, really have grown to value is the gift of prophecy. Um, and when you really believe that God has spoken to you about something, it is so helpful to wait for confirmation, or when you do get confirmation, from a source that has absolutely no connection or idea about you or what you're dealing with. Um, so we were recently um, waiting for the Lord to confirm something, just two big decisions and they were going to affect the church and the resources of our church. And, um, and I was feeling really shaken by the idea of embracing these two decisions. But a number of folks who we trust and love had um, encouraged us in these decisions. And um, I, we drove onto the drive and I said to John, you know, the thing is, all these people that I love and trust, I, I'm just doubting that really, really have they really thought the implications through uh, but, you know, I do trust them. I'm trying to accept that this really is the Lord's will for us. But I need to hear from the Lord from some independent source. I need to know that this is God. And so we prayed, God, if this is you and we're to move forward with these two big decisions and opportunities, then we need to hear from you. And I walked into the house and it was, we were having a few days off, so I wouldn't normally look at my emails. I walked into the house and I just opened my email account and saw that an email had come through from a guy who'd been in our church eight years ago. And once in those eight years, he has sent me a dream that was really relevant. And so I looked at it and I thought, oh, this Rich had sent us a, an email. So I opened it and he'd had a dream the night before. And he, in the dream, John and I were sitting at traffic lights and he said, you were sitting in front of two sets of traffic lights and they were both green. And I felt the Lord say that you're about to make a decision. There's some big new uh, opportunity and uh, both of them are right. Both of them are green. And I just so value it when people will take courage 
and send us um, a word like that. And, you know, in our, in our local communities, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we turned up on a Sunday or to a small group with something for somebody you know, a word of encouragement, uh, just a little piece of revelation. Don't try and interpret it if you haven't got the interpretation. But just if we're regularly, we all need to be encouraged. The scriptures tell us to encourage one another. And to act on those thoughts and those dreams, make sure it's encouraging. You know, do not go up to somebody and say, I had the dream that you were going to get cancer. I mean, that is not going to help anybody. You know, I had a dream that you're going to lose your baby. I mean, that is not going to help anybody. If you ever get that kind of revelation, you just pray for that person. But I mean, you know, don't be ridiculous and upset people. But you might have a dream where you have a sense that somebody's going to get, you know, get sick, but that they're also going to get well. And you might say something like, I just had a dream that you were going to maybe experience a challenging season, but you need to know that if you experience that challenging season, there will be a breakthrough. God is going to be there. And so that gives them encouragement. And so we've had people give us those kinds of words where they have said, it's going to be a difficult time for you, but it's all in the Lord's will and and you're going to come through the other side. And of course, then when we you know, hit that time, I'm, I'm just like, this is it. We're in this season, but it's going to be good. We're going to have a breakthrough. This is going to work out well. So um, we need to be obedient. So then a couple of years ago, actually, this is, this is about six years ago, we had just moved into our new building, and um, we were facing having to extend the building again. And, you know, our people had given so sacrificially. And we had talked to our staff And they were doubting that this was the right time to go back to the church again and ask them to give sacrificially, to extend the building again. And so uh, our staff were doubting, and also they were doubting, do we need to get any bigger? You know, like, do we really need to get to be a bigger church? Couldn't we just stay as we are? And uh, so we were traveling down to London, and I have to say, at that point in time, John and I felt extremely alone. We felt the Lord nudging us to make to to go for this uh, extension but we felt very alone and um and my john had on his desk the plans of the church and he was literally drawing the extension of the building so the plans on his office desk were laid out and we get to london and we go to a vineyard dinner party with other vineyard pastors and we sit down and the couple that sat next to us said oh how wonderful you've sat next to us we've got a word for you and, uh, but it wasn't from them, and again, they knew nothing of, of what we were thinking about. We'd only just talked to our staff at that point in time. And they said, but it's not a word from us, it's from somebody who's in one of our small groups. And uh, so they began to explain how they had been teaching their small group on dreams and interpretation of dreams. And there was this guy in their group who said, well, I don't believe in dreams and interpretation of dreams, he said, because I once was at a conference Uh, a couple of years back, all on the subject of dreams. And he said, and that night I had a vivid dream and it came to nothing. I said, I don't dream normally, but I've had this vivid dream and I was convinced God was speaking to me with urgency. And I asked everybody at the conference if this was them, if they knew, and, and it didn't come to anything. So I don't even, I don't get this stuff. And so they said, well, what was the dream? And he said, well, I had the name John Wright. And I was to tell John Wright from Nottingham, that the plans for his church are right. (laughs) So this was a year ago. They've heard it like two weeks previously, and they tell us at the very point in which we need to hear that word. 
And you can imagine, we were on... Cl- I mean, we were speaking at this conference with all these pastors the next day. We were on cloud nine. I mean, we're like, if the Lord is with us, you know, the wind is in our sails. And it is just so encouraging. Uh, but this kind of set of coincidences and people just, you know, they could have forgotten that word. They could have thought, you know, well, it was a year ago he got it. And they could have said, well, we do know someone and maybe it was relevant back then. But they gave us that word and the timing was incredible for us. It was just amazing. The kingdom of God is not something that we engage with passively. We need to seek it. We need to go for it. And uh, Matthew 11 tells us that the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and forceful men and forceful women lay hold of it. Something needs to be done. You know, when something is agitating you and bothering you, when John and I were frustrated because we didn't know where to take our friends who were becoming Christians, God was speaking. He was, it was his way of telling us, you need a vineyard in Nottingham. There are some people who won't fit anywhere else. There are some people who will not find Jesus through some other church. They need a vineyard. And so sometimes something's agitating you, something's frustrating you, and sometimes that's the Lord speaking out of that frustration that something needs to be done and you need to begin to to move. You may not have the resources yet and you may not be able to get your church to participate in it, but you may be called to feed the poor and you have to start out of your own food and resources doing something to make a difference. Um, One of the women in our church, she just felt um, convinced that she should... As she met homeless people, she should connect them up with other organizations. So she did a bit of research and she found out there were places where people could sleep at night. There were places that you could go and hang out in. There were drugs clinics. There were you know, places that would teach you English if you're a foreigner. And as she went out feeding people on the streets of Nottingham with our teams who went with the cabin, which was like a setup, she developed this little booklet with contacts and she called it Pathway. She began to give out these things. And uh, that developed into a much more organized um, way of connecting up all the different organizations. And now our city council does that as a, as a matter of fact. You know, it's like, of course it needed to be done. But, you know, there are things that we can do, and we don't have to wait for permission, uh, only if you're going to use the resources of the church or expect staff time or a lot of looking after. Well, then, of course, you need their permission. But there are so many things that we can do um, and uh, begin to... But we need to take responsibility for hearing the Lord and if we make mistakes for, for making them, those mistakes. Uh, we have um, a church uh, in the UK in Ireland, uh, Causeway Coast, and they see incredible things because they regularly go out on the streets. And it's, it's amazing what they see. And one of the things that they've started to see are scars disappearing. So I've got two pictures. Can we have... Um, so that's one of them. So you can see the top. There's the scars there, and they're, they're fading, and then after the fourth time of fraying, it's, they've pretty much disappeared. And then the next one is, um, have you got another picture? There we go. So that's the scars on the one day, and then the next picture, that's the next day. And, um, you know, that, that's, that is a sign and a wonder, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? So... Um, they just began to go out on the streets, and then they went more regularly, and they see, ama- I mean, they see cancers, cancerous lumps disappearing, and, uh, you know, they have these amazing testimonies, but they have such thick Irish accents that we don't understand them. So we've at times played them over to the church, but nobody understands, and they need interpreting. So uh, they have people telling their stories in, in Irish accents. So we need to seize the opportunities when we're stirred up. 
We were um, at a leaders' uh, day, and Rich Nathan from Columbus was speaking to our leaders. And um, he happened to mention in his talk that a young student had come to them to Columbus to study from Sudan. And uh, he was going through their VLI, and um, he ended up going to plant a church in Sudan. And um, one of the girls sitting there, one of the young leaders in our church, she heard that there was a church plant, a pastor in Sudan, and there's a story behind this day. This young girl had connected with a woman in our church called Judith. Judith had come to us through uh, being a, a refugee and asylum seeker. I can't remember the difference between the two. But anyway, she comes to our church, and she and her, she had had to escape Zimbabwe, and um, her husband had been imprisoned for being a Christian, for, for just doing a small group. And so um, she had, was in our country with a baby girl that her husband had never seen or met. You know, so she was pregnant when she escaped. And for many, many years, it's about seven years, um, people in our church had prayed with Judith for her husband. Not, she didn't know whether he was alive or dead. And so on this day that Rich is speaking, this young leader in our church runs out to the office and she calls the Columbus Vineyard and she says, can I have the number of the pastor in Sudan? Because Judith, a day, yeah, just the day before, had received a phone call from her husband who had managed to escape Zimbabwe and was now in Sudan uh, but he had malaria, and nobody, he knew nobody, he'd managed to get her number from relatives in Zimbabwe, and he's now dying, but he's literally phoning up to say, I don't know if I'm going to live, uh, I love you, I've escaped prison, and she's able to talk about her daughter, and, and of course she's both delighted and distraught, and so this young girl gets the number and calls this pastor in Sudan. The pastor goes to find Judith's husband and nurses him and pays, pays for him to have some uh, doctor's attention and he is nursed back to health and we pay for the ticket to get him back home. And he comes back to England and he sees his wife and daughter who he's never met his daughter and it is just amazing. They're now full members you know, in our church and uh, it's just so delightful. But that young girl brushed out with a kind of an urgency and an impulse. She needed to do something and had the timing been any later... Had she waited a couple of days, Judith's husband may not have been alive or found. So um, we need to move. I, I must tell you this story, and this is one of those stories that relates to when you don't think anything has happened. So one of our young people was praying for folks on the streets of Nottingham, and um, a mother comes up and says, will you pray for my daughter? She has ulcers. Not only did she have one ulcer, but she had a mouthful of ulcers, so much so she couldn't speak. And um, so they pray for her. Nothing happens. Uh, the girl doesn't feel anything. And so it's one of those, like, a non-story, really. Three weeks later, the mother and daughter turn up at our church. It took them three buses to get to our church building uh, to tell us how an hour later the ulcer started to pop off out of her mouth and she's spitting the ulcers out. And they've all gone. And uh, they, on that, you know, just an hour later, they like, you know, it just took about an hour and they'd all gone. And they come back to tell us uh, how they'd experienced this miracle. And so, you know, it's embarrassing to pray for people. It's, you're stepping out of your comfort zone. You don't always see the results. You have no idea um, uh, whether people are experiencing God or not sometimes. Because sometimes they don't know how to describe what they're feeling. So we're taking risks. But we also, as we begin to see things happen, it's good to train each other and to teach each other how to do this. And so um, there was a situation in which one of the BBC radio uh, presenters in our city, she's a Christian, 
She doesn't come to our church. She goes to a local Anglican church. But she was at a New Wine, which is, um, again, a, a movement that has spread across the UK and the world that was ignited by John Wimber. He actually put the seed money in uh, for my father to start this um, gathering of church leaders and their churches from all around. And so they get, I mean, I don't know how many... Um, they have one site that, that can have 9,000 on the site, and they do that twice um, in the summer, so two lots of 9,000, and there's another one with 5,000, and then all different ones around the world of Christians gathering. And uh, so, anyway, so she uh, was at a New Wine uh, leaders um, kind of uh, gathering, and one of the guys from Causeway Coast, the Irish guys, was teaching the pastors how to pray for the sick, and he's doing a demonstration on Fran, who's the BBC presenter from Nottingham, and she's put this out on YouTube and talked about it on the radio and everything, but basically when she was about three years old, she had an accident, and it ended up with one of her legs being shorter than the other, so that she had a, a like, like a two and a half inch gap between one foot and the other, and so she's always had to wear heavy boots that have insoles and special fitted boots. So she couldn't wear feminine clothes. She couldn't wear high heels because she was always wearing these boots. She's a bit of, she's a, bit of a biker girl. And um, so they're praying for her. And at the time, she had no belief whatsoever that anything would happen uh, because she just had issues with the Father's love. And it's really interesting what Mark prays. And so they're all watching her, and somebody's filming this with their little phone. So let's have a look at this. Uh, she was just she was just amazed that that happened to her, and she came to our church and told the story, but she put it out on the radio. Everybody in Nottingham knows what happened to Fran because she's a well-known BBC presenter. And um, it's just so simple. And what I wanted you to see in that um, film is that uh, he actually, in that situation, he says, let her know your love, because that was a word of knowledge about things that go on in Fran's heart because she very much doubted the father's love. And so he doesn't even pray for the leg to grow. Literally, he's just saying, come Holy Spirit, show, show her your love. I would say, though, uh, I think that's quite a risky thing to say because we must never measure God's love by whether we're healed. There is no more that Jesus can do for us than hanging on the cross. I mean, that is the ultimate demonstration of his love. And so we must never, ever fall into that trap of measuring God's love. It just so happened that for Fran, that sign was... was was the way in which she would know because she has su had such a, a strong false lie that she was not loved uh, by God, that she wasn't good enough. Um, but for most of us here, we must be very careful to not end up thinking that God doesn't love us because we're not physically healed. A healing isn't the goal of our lives. It's to become worshippers of Jesus and to be transformed into his likeness. Healing is, is, is a sign and a wonder. I was saying to Brenda last night, on the way home. What's so exciting when people experience physical healing, and, and I know not all of you um, shared this morning, but at least three of you have come to me with the uh, being able to smell uh, and not being able to smell before, but being able to smell now. And I said, what I love about that is that when you see the physical healings, you know that the other stuff that is being prayed through that people are experiencing inner healing is, is incredibly real as well. And to be honest, the transformed life that is helping you you know, when you engage with the Holy Spirit and you are being changed into the likeness of Christ and you begin to fulfill the plan that God, God has for your life, that is a far greater healing than 
the physical healings. But the physical healings are signs that show us, oh, the spirit really is at work. It's like a visible thing that we can see and measure that say that help us go, oh, so that stuff that's going on with me on the inside is, is also for real amongst us all. So we're, we're encouraged by it, but it really isn't the goal. Um, and so, you know, we, we want to learn how to do this and we want to keep it really simple. Um, we do live in the time of the not yet, and so we will have huge disappointments. And we need to continue to trust the Lord. I remember John um, telling us the story, John Wimber, the man who led him to Christ, Gunnar Payne. Gunnar Payne was an incredible evangelist, and he had access to almost everybody's home in Orange County because everybody knew who Gunnar Payne was. Because Gunnar Payne had been all over the papers when his um, daughter was murdered and raped by a, the young man that they were, was their lodger. So they had a lodger, and he ended up raping and murdering their daughter, Gunnar Payne's daughter. And on the night that Gunnar Payne went out to identify her body, he comes back home and he gathers the family together, and he says, we need to pray. Father, we don't understand, but we trust you. And he then made it his business to go and see the young guy who was imprisoned, and uh, continue to witness to him and lead him to faith. And that was just an incredibly powerful story in Orange County. And so when John used to walk around with him and learn about evangelism, he could see how every door opened to Gunner Payne because the story was so incredible and so dramatic. And so we don't understand why terrible things happened, why we experience sickness and disease, why sometimes the very sickness that we have, we pray for other people to get healed and they get healed of it. And, uh, you know, we don't understand. I was um, visiting my nail technicians. I have uh, regularly my nails get done. And so I was, and I've often prayed for them and various things have happened. And so I walk into my nail technicians on one occasion and my nail technician, she says, Debbie, you need to hear, um, oh, what was her name? I haven't written it down. Lisa, Lisa, that's right. Lisa's story. And so Lisa turns to me and begins to tell me a story of how she and her husband and children have had to move three times because there are ghosts in their house. And so the children see ghosts and they see this uh, young girl appear to them and they're terrified. They see faces. They, they, the, the house begins to shake. Uh, their beds shake. And Lisa herself said she feels like something, a hand goes into the bed and begins to shake her, her ankle bracelet. Uh, just And like snakes crossing her bed. Just weird weird things and they have moved three times to get away from these ghosts so I'm thinking this isn't about the house this is about you and your family and so um, I've never prayed for that sort of thing before Uh, I mean we all hear about people having ghosts but I'd never had the opportunity to go and pray in this sort of a situation so I said yep I'll come I'll come and pray for you and uh, I'll come tomorrow so uh, full of faith in the moment but then later I called my dad and I said dad what do I do he said holy water take holy water (laughs) and all I had was a little whiskey container (laughs) filled it with water we blessed it anyway you know so we turn up to this house and um there's seven little pairs of shoes lined up and it turns out that this family they have seven children beautiful children with long, uh, sort of uh, blonde, blonde hair, almost white, little girls and boys. And uh, the little, there's a, some of them are at school, so I think there's four of them at home, a little boy and I think three little girls. 
And mum and dad are there. And so I've taken with me uh, one of our young pastor's wives and um, one of our interns. And uh, we're kind of trying to look after the kids. And then we start praying for mum and dad, who clearly have no... Uh, are not churchgoers, but they had called the local Church of England minister who came to the house but said he didn't feel anything and left them. And uh, and then they called um, a spiritualist church who said they had to come to their church, and they went there, and it was very strange, so they didn't go back. And then they called a clairvoyant, and she shouted down the phone in fear because she said, there's so much um, uh, horrible stuff in your house, I can't come. So that was very helpful. So we just said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to invite the presence of the Holy Spirit. We, we all love Jesus, and uh, we have faith in Jesus who loves you, and we're going to ask his Holy Spirit to show us what's going on here. So we just began to pray. And then um, Anna, the young pastor's wife, she said, I have a sense that there's grief. There's a lot of grief here. And all of a sudden, both of them started to weep turns out that not only did they have seven children, but they had lost seven children. So the first one, he says, oh, that's my daughter. That's who's... And basically, uh, about 16 years previously, he had been in another relationship and the, his partner had become pregnant but had aborted the child. And he had never wanted this baby to be aborted and he was grief-stricken. It ended up tearing their relationship apart. And he automatically suddenly says, that's my daughter, the ghost, the, the, worm, the young girl that everybody's seeing, it's my daughter. And he said it, we didn't. And so we said, well, look, you need to give your daughter to Jesus. And so we began to do this. He gave his daughter to Jesus. And uh, just this amazing peace came over him. And then they, they said, and then there was another child that had been, uh, there had been twins and one of them had died and so they gave that baby to Jesus. And we went through these babies one by one, a couple of miscarriages, a stillbirth. I mean, it was just like different. I mean, it, it was horrific. But each one they gave to the Lord. And it was deeply moving. And, uh, and then just to sort of check that everything had happened, I sprinkled holy water around the house. <laughs> but we said to them, you know, Jesus loves you, and they'd experienced the peace of God, the love of the Father. They had given these babies over, and they were both feeling very, very different. And we encouraged them to come to church. We encouraged them to bring their children to church. We'd love to see them there and all the rest of it. And um, anyway, a week or so went by, and uh, I went, was passing the nail technicians, and I just put my head through the door to say hi. And they, all the girls who do the nails looked up and they went, Debbie, have you heard? The ghosts have gone. And so all the nail technicians knew. I, had, I didn't know what the effect of our ministry had been because I hadn't seen this, the, the woman. And, um, and I honestly expected that family to come to church, but they never showed up. And, you know, we just don't know. Why wouldn't they show up? They've had a dramatic encounter. Not only have they had an inner healing experience through the love of Jesus, and we couldn't have been nicer people. <laughs> but the ghosts have gone, and God has done an amazing thing in their lives. And why didn't they come? And so sometimes we're confused, but we have to press on. And we hold on to Jesus, and we just have to be obedient. There are people who are you know, pressing on with God through enormous challenges in their life. And, and I just think that it's amazing that though they don't see dramatic changes, dramatic healing, 
they press forward ministering to others, and that is such a great testimony. I just want to finish with um, Joyce. Joyce um, came to our church, and she felt utterly disqualified as um, kind of a woman and her ability to function in the kingdom because her husband had left her for a homosexual relationship. And so not only did she feel just her whole womanhood and her sexuality and just, just you know, just how had that come to be? Um, but she, because she was divorced, she felt, um, you know, she could never really function as, um, as a woman in the kingdom. But um, she'd been with us for a while, and, and uh, she actually started heading up prayer in the church and did a wonderful job with that. And then um, we started a school for kids who are on the verge of exclusion because of their behavior being so difficult. And so she takes in um, nine kids either side of the week. So Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday, nine, and Thursday and Friday, nine. And they come in, and the schools recommend that they come to this um, TLG, we call it the Lighthouse. And uh, she has an incredible gift of patience. And all these kids know that this school is um, God-centered. Uh, but we're not trying to you know, he- you know, convert them, but we just want to help them change their behavior. But they know that prayer is a part of this. And she has this extraordinary patience. And these kids' lives are changing. And just recently, they did an award ceremony. And the kids and school teachers and headmasters, all from non-Christian schools, and the council politicians, the parents of the kids came for this little award ceremony. And two of the kids um, got up and just shared how their lives had been changed. And one of them said, I came to TLG because because of my bad behavior at school. I was easily distracted and easily wound up. And since I came to TLG, my behavior's got better. I'm more concentrated and less distracted. I want to achieve my GCSEs. That is just unheard of in these kids, uh, that they would get any sort of qualification. I want to go to college. I want to study mechanics. I want to do something practical, and then I want to get a job. People who've got bad behavior should come to TLG because actually it turns your life around. And then this young girl, she says, when my mum was pregnant with me, she was a drug addict and a prostitute. When I was born, she used to leave me at home and go out partying. And I didn't even have a proper bed. I used to sleep in a drawer. She used to put drugs in my milk. She gave me up and I went to a foster home. I took an overdose in April. I don't like school. I've had a hard time because I've been excluded twice and I'm on the edge of being permanently excluded because of my behavior. At school, I get loads of red and yellow cards because of my attitude and the way I talk to people. I don't get distracted so much here, and my attitude is better. I think it would be good if I could stay here until the end of year 11 because I really want to work on my attitude and also on my anger because I talk to people horribly, and I would like to change. I'm trying really hard to change. Just the fact that they would enter a level of self-awareness and the fact that they're beginning to understand how their behavior affects other people, these are major progress, and um, these kids... Some of them are, you know, have come to the church. Uh, some of the parents have, have just begun to understand uh, just how much this is God's work in the lives of their kids. Some of them are from Muslim families, and it's just been a wonderful thing. But for Joyce to think that she was disqualified and yet she is fully participating in God's kingdom, um, for her that was stepping out in radical obedience against all her feelings of... Um, shame and uh, discomfort and insecurity and all of that. So that's all I want to talk about. I do want us to do some more in the area of physical healing before we go into praying for all of you to be empowered, because I really think the Holy Spirit wants us to be empowered to do this stuff of the kingdom uh, in every which way possible.
But before we move forward, I want us to do um, to uh, just ask the Lord to lead us um, in some physical healing. And we're going to do it really simply because I want us to just grow in a model that is so simple that when we're out there on the streets or with our friends, we, we just, you know, we can do healing and it's natural and it's very ordinary and uh, where we can measure the results. So 